Hi, and welcome to Listen Up A-Holes, the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that is a pimp stormtrooper. I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. And I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. Together, we are working our way through the good, the bad, and the always forward of the MCU. So listen up, A-Holes. We're going to talk about Luke Cage Season 1's Big Finish. Okay, Lonnie, I was very dismissive about Four Color Facts in our last episode, <laughs> yeah. and I regret a little bit. Um, but it did leave me one Four Color Fact, or I guess one and a quarter yeah, Four okay. Color Facts to mm-hmm. deal with here in the Big Finish. All right. So let's talk briefly about Shades. Okay. You may recall I mentioned Shades is a much more obviously African-American or at least part African-American in the comics. Mm-hmm. He is also a member of the Rivals, which was the same street gang as Carl Lucas, Willis Stryker, mm-hmm. and a guy named Comanche that I think is more prominent in season two and also did briefly show up in this season at Seagate. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. But Shades really is just some guy from Luke's youth who got into enough trouble with the law to also wind up at Seagate. Mm-hmm. Like, that's kind of it. Okay. He's never really been much of a player in the comics. And honestly, Theo Rossi is doing a million times more with him than I could ever have predicted based upon his comic okay. book appearances. <laughs> Shades is introduced in Luke Cage Hero for Hire, number one, you may recall, trying mm-hmm. to recruit Carl into a prison gang. But he and Comanche eventually show back up in Harlem to once again try and recruit Luke into a revenge scheme against Captain Rackham, Mm -hmm. the prison guard from Seagate. Mm -hmm. That falls through. They then run afoul of Luke and Iron Fist as hired guns. That's really it. That's it. (laughs) That's all there is to Shades. Wow. That's all there is to Shades. Wow. And here at the end of the show, they don't really give me much else to work with, which is fine. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of mess I don't need, you know, to sift it for gold. However, I will say the and a quarter four color fact Mm -hmm. is that Misty's outfit and hairstyle at the very end of the show, Mm -hmm. at the very end of the season finale, is spot on her usual comic book look. Oh, okay. Well, that's kind of neat. Yeah. No, I agree. It's nice to nod at it Mm -hmm. since we loved her so much throughout this thing. Mm -hmm. Now, it usually looks more kind of like a, like leather and stuff like that because it's stuff that she's running around punching people in, right. you know, mm-hmm. leaping rooftop to rooftop and mm-hmm. stuff. But, I mean, the the cut of it, the co- that color red, that just really blood red obvious thing and her kind of extra large afro mm-hmm. is very much the usual look for her since she became a bigger player, as I mentioned, has happened in the last, you know, 10 years or so. Okay. So, that's really all I got. That's all the four <laughs> color facts. However, yes. I was very negligent about music and art and culture at the end of our last episode. Mm-hmm. And I also have some corrections and retractions. So I will have much more ephemera to discuss at the end of the episode. All right. Well, we will go ahead and move through the rest of this episode so we can get to that because that's probably going to be the good part. All right. Let's talk about episodes 12 and 13 of Luke Cage season one, Soliloquy of Chaos and You Know My Steez. In Soliloquy of Chaos, Luke is taken into custody after the hostage situation at Harlem's Paradise, but then escapes. A cop chases him and lets him go. Diamondback tries to have Shades killed, but Shades manages to kill the killers. While Luke is searching for Diamondback, he walks into a holdup, takes out the guy, saves Method Man, trades his shot-up hoodie for Method Man's jacket, and walks out. Candace tells Misty what Mariah did, and Misty takes her to Claire's mom's house to hide out. Shades tries to work out a plan with Mariah to point Luke and Diamondback at each other, hoping they'll kill each other. Luke goes to a warehouse to find Diamondback, but finds a bunch of dead guys and Domingo, who is almost dead. Mostly dead. Luke discovers a bomb, carries Domingo out, and Domingo dies on the street as the place explodes. Luke meets up with Diamondback at Pops, and the fight begins. Soliloquy of Chaos was written by Akila Cooper and Charles Murray and directed by Phil Abraham. In You Know My Steez, Luke and Diamondback fight and fight and fight. 
and fight and fight and fight. <laughs> but Diamondback's power suit fails, so hey, there you go. Mariah outs Luke as Carl Lucas, and they are both arrested. Shades uses Misty's phone to get Candace outside and then kills her so she can't testify against Mariah, and Mariah is freed from custody. Shades picks up Mariah and gives her a pearl-handled gun for the next stage of their shenanigans. Luke arrives at the police station to give his statement, which is essentially a love letter to Harlem and black culture. Just as he's done, federal marshals arrive to take him into custody. Luke says he's innocent, but they say that's not their job. They're really just there to take him in. Claire says she knows a lawyer who can help, and Luke goes with them. Dr. Burstein shows up at the hospital to visit Diamondback. That can't be good. You Know My Steez was written by Aida Mashaka Kroll and Cheo Hodari Coker and directed by Clark Johnson. All right, so Joshua, um, let me just start us off by saying, yes, this is bad. Let's just lay it out on the table. This stuff is oh, it's really horribly, bad. horribly written. We have the, it's so bad. you understand? Oh, I overstand. Like that kind of shit. Um, there is a, kind of a terrible, as far as like the dialogue and the way that it's written and the way that it is presented and the way that everything, uh, the speech at the end of, you know, my steez is really bad. We've got this three card Monty game that is our constantly shifting antagonist. Uh, the weird direction from the clearly commanded overacting from all of these actors to the overwrought musical choices. The fact that the antagonist is beat with 30 minutes left to go. And Claire is going to get a great lawyer, she knows, presumably Matt Murdock, to help Carl Lucas or Luke Cage or whoever he is now. But he's in Georgia. And Murdock is licensed in New York. And my understanding is that doesn't translate, right? Uh, there's some wiggle, but probably not. You got to have a bar license in the state. Aren't there some states that have like exchangeable bars? I don't know. Seemed a little weird to me. Maybe it's possible. I don't know anything about the law. I'm just saying it seemed a little weird. The word you're looking for is reciprocity. And there are states that do that, but okay. you still have to get your bar license. Like you can't just show up okay. and say, you've got reciprocity so I can practice. You have to apply for the bar license there. And I don't think that New York does reciprocity with anybody, but... Oh. Georgia might do reciprocity with New York. So okay. uh, the bottom line is, friends, <laughs> that's actually the least of their legal problems in these episodes. We'll get to right. it. Right. And reality is not necessarily something that Luke Cage is, is that interested in. So fine. You know, um, at the same time, uh, one of the things that I noticed while I was watching it is that this season of Luke Cage really is a love letter. It's a love letter to Harlem. It's a love letter to black culture, to a bulletproof black superhero. There's a lot in here that I can actually appreciate. And usually, like, I tend not to look too far extra textually to defend a narrative because my specialty is story. And make no mistake, the story here is not good. And if this had been white people doing this shit, I'd have absolutely no patience for it. <laughs> but the bottom line is we don't have enough black stories celebrating black culture. And I'm sorry it matters. Culturally, it just fucking matters. Having a black superhero matters. Now, in the case with Black Panther, we had an excellent one, right? Yeah. And here, I mean, Luke Cage himself as a character, I think is really interesting, really great. And the idea of a bulletproof black Black man is fantastic. I absolutely love that. Um, but it's so poorly written. And one of the things that I really wish that we had had the time to do, and unfortunately, we just have been so strapped, just getting you and me to record these things is enough of a challenge. It's really hard to get anybody else on the show. So I really would like to apologize that we don't have a black culture critic, meaning a culture critic who is black, not a culture critic who is siloed here with us to record the discussion of this show. And since I am not a black culture critic, I feel unequal to the task of really talking about how important it is coming from a culture that has stereotyped and scapegoated black characters all along. How important it is that we have stories that celebrate black culture, that show us the art and the music and the cultural artifacts that black people have contributed and celebrate that. Um, and in my class, like uh, we recently reviewed a movie called Love, Simon, which is kind of 
the standard teen romance, but with gay main characters. And it was really an illuminating discussion. It's a fun little story. It ignores a lot of the standard gay experience, as I was told by people in my class who are gay. So I didn't decide that I understand the gay experience. This is what was relayed to me. And I believe <laughs> they're, you know, what they tell me. Um, yeah. It also speaks from a highly privileged experience. And there are certain things it doesn't understand and doesn't address. Also written by a straight white lady. So, you know, whatever. And we realized as we discussed that, that the problem wasn't necessarily that that Love, Simon had fallen down on the job. Love, Simon had gone out to do something and did exactly the thing that it intended to do. But because there aren't enough gay stories, um, then there's so much weight on every single one to do everything and it's not fair you know i mean on the one hand it's nice to have a sweet fun little story where gay characters have a happy ending nobody dies you know um at the same time it it, you know according to my students who've had this experience it doesn't fully represent how difficult that whole experience is and how difficult it is to come out, how difficult it is to, you know, to basically have all of these experiences. It doesn't represent the reality of what that is in our culture, the way our culture is, you know. Um, and at the same time, if we had the discussion that that gay people have the right to have fun little fantasy stories. I mean, God knows romantic comedies are not necessarily the most, you know, tapped into reality in general. But because straight <laughs> people are always represented, there's no extra weight. They're allowed to have the fun right. silly little stories, you know. So when you don't have enough representation told from the perspective of the people who own those stories means that those are the people who are above the line in the creative decision making positions, then the additional extra textual and cultural weight of those stories can't and should not be ignored. So before we go into talking about how this season has failed narratively, I just want it said that it is important to have something that celebrates the wonderful things that black people and artists have done for this country and for this culture. And I'm sorry that Luke Cage wasn't better. And I'm sorry I can't talk about it with more knowledge of these extratextual cultural issues. And I'm sorry I don't have better things to say about the writing. I really wish I did. But I just want to start with a moment of appreciation and a call for more people of all backgrounds to work above the line, which means directors, writers, producers, people with creative power to influence how our stories are told and tell them properly. But that said, uh, it's terrible. I mean, right? Yeah, let me (laughs) chime in and agree. I mean, when I have done my best Mm -hmm. to sort of collect and gather the black culture from this show and say, hey, there's in the show notes or something for you to be aware of. Mm -hmm. Definitely listen to this band if you've never heard them. Some of that is the fact that I have been a fan of African-American music mm-hmm. since I was very young mm-hmm. and have just, you know, picked stuff up. Same with like black exploitation novels yeah. and films. But I'm still an outsider looking in. I am still basically just saying this is a thing that they are doing. Be aware of it. But I would be just way out of my lane to try and tell you what any of it means or how right. it matters. Mm-hmm. So and, and I do think that it's OK that we did not necessarily tap in like a full bore black cultural critic. Mm -hmm. They exist. They are doing this work. They have done this work with Luke Cage. Mm -hmm. They are out there. You know, we're covering the MCU as a whole. You know, we're trying to do the best we can in the areas that we're not necessarily great at. But Mm -hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, we're talking about superhero stuff, story stuff. Mm -hmm and doing our best with the the things that are outside of our lane that intersect with that. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. But so it is very important. It's massively important that this show exists at all and that it got a second season and that it's, you know, just very full Mm -hmm. of blackness. And Mm -hmm. that is wonderful. And it it is a little mystifying to me and unfortunate that we weren't able to get a really meaty, well-told story at the same time. Yeah. feels like a missed opportunity on that level. Right, because there's so much weight. I mean, there are terrible white shows all the time, and it's okay. They could be terrible (laughs) because they don't have to carry that weight. (laughs) 
Yeah, most of the MCU Netflix is not spectacular, not friends. Not spectacular. I mean, yeah, exactly. That's why we need more, more, more of these stories so that that weight can come off, you know? Agreed. Yeah. So now that we have talked about the parts that we're not good at talking about. Right. <laughs> Let's swerve back into our lane. <laughs> And try and avoid ramming into the fiery hot mess that is this last couple of episodes, oh my, my goodness. Oh my God. I have a whole section just labeled why. I mean, I've watched yeah. both of these episodes twice. I still can't really follow what all happened. Like why, when Luke was being taken into custody, did Misty make that big speech about how he's going down for what he did? She knows he's innocent. Can Do you have, I, I honestly watched it a couple of times. I had no idea what the hell was happening. Did you catch something that I missed? Did I miss something incredibly obvious in this moment? I don't know if it's incredibly obvious, but... What she was doing was telling him at what point in his route he could escape properly to not let himself get all the way to the precinct because there they would have all of the Judas bullets and he'd have to go through a bunch more cops. She was basically saying, you've got stuff to do. Bounce up out of there before you get to the precinct. Okay, But why that instead of, oh, hey, I was in there and he's innocent. I think that that's because she was being massively overridden by her boss, the inspector. Okay. I can't think of her name, but the inspector yeah. that took over when, yeah. when Kima yeah. Greg was was fired. Um, yeah, I. she's just getting overridden. Like, he's got to go in. And to be fair, he really does have to go in because it doesn't matter if he's innocent of everything that was going on in the Harlem Paradise. He punched two cops half a block. So Well, yes. Yes, there needs to be a conversation with Luke Cage and right. the police department. There yeah. does. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. I just don't know. the timing's terrible. It's just <laughs> it is. It's it's really it was just so clumsily done. And I could not figure out what the hell was going on. Um, all right. So here's another thing. Why do we take this side street in the middle of the narrative to hang out with Method Man? I mean, I know why we did. It's just not a solid narrative choice. And I have to say, I enjoyed all of it. I enjoyed his radio interview. <laughs> yeah. I loved his, his you know, homage to Luke Cage. All of that was great. I even loved the moment, like, Luke walks in. There's this, you know, hold up. He grabs the gun. He bends it in his hand. I love when he hits the guy in the face. Like, the scene itself is actually delightful. But we are in yeah. the climax of our story and taking i don't know 10 minutes between the scene in the bodega or whatever and then the scene in the radio station um that seemed like a weird narrative side street to go down did you catch something in there that i missed no i don't think so i i think they really just wanted to make the subtext text yeah and knew better than to let Luke do it, at least until the end of the next episode. Mm -hmm. And so they just, you know, let Meth do it. And look, Meth is delightful. Oh, he was. It was absolutely delightful, but narratively indefensible. Wild choices. I mean, even if you just had him run into Method Man so Method Man could be in the show, but mm -hmm. then also having the radio interview, again... The point was to have him do the radio interview because they want to make the text because well, yeah. they want to make the subtext text. But, yeah, it's it's bad. OK, it's earlier in the season, you know, when Luke is just starting to be this this figure of controversy, you know, like I could yeah. have, I could have handled that back then. But at this point, we're in the middle. This is the middle of the climax. And we're taking this time out. Now, I have to say, though, that said, I love when they swap jackets and Method Man puts his fingers through the holes and he's like <laughs> loving it. He looks like a kid who just got you know, a jersey from his favorite like football star. You know, I loved that moment. Like, and I loved his uh, his freestyling. I loved all of that. It just stops the narrative for no reason and goes yeah. off onto this side street and it just like in the middle of the you know this escalating tension that we've been building up toward this for the entire season and we're gonna stop for this like it's just it's not narratively defensible um domingo 
What is the point of Domingo? Aside from being just another <laughs> group of guys with guns on the street, like what is even the point of Domingo? Why do we have this cast of thousands in the antagonist side? There's no, there's no reason. I mean, I feel like if we had never lost Cottonmouth, yes. I could probably make a case mm-hmm. for Domingo mm-hmm. mattering. But yeah, at this point, he's like, the appendix. Yeah. He's just hanging out there. We've evolved past him, but he's still in there. Complete vestigial tail. Did not need him. And that's why, of course, he <laughs> he gets killed in this explosion. And everything is explosions. It's insane. Um, how is there not any other evidence against Mariah besides Candace? And why isn't what Candace told Misty admissible? I mean, is it hearsay if you're a cop and somebody tells you this stuff? I mean, I don't know. Like, I didn't understand any of that. Like, why they had to let Mariah go after Candace was killed. The answer is they did not have to let her go. I have consulted with an attorney Uh. (laughs) on this matter because it was bothering me a lot also. Mm -hmm. So, so I am not an expert. This is not legal advice. This is secondhand information. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do my best. Okay. (laughs) Everything not said in the courtroom is hearsay. Okay. All of it. Okay. If it is not uttered, on the record in the courtroom hearsay okay that said if you were a defense attorney you absolutely should be like that woman is dead and she cannot testify that should not be admissible Mm -hmm. and the but the prosecution would say um excuse me she was murdered on the street Possibly because of this testimony. By the way, this testimony was recorded by a decorated New York City police detective who will come in and testify to exactly what she heard and the circumstances that she heard it in. Now, judges can do whatever the hell they want, but I am led to believe that that's a pretty fucking compelling reason to allow her recorded testimony. (laughs) Secondly, Uh secondly. Letting Mariah go would not be the decision of the police Uh at that point. You have a high-profile citizen of the community Uh that you have arrested for murder and (laughs) attendant charges. You have had a conversation with the district attorney before you put Uh, bracelets on her. mm -hmm. And if you didn't have a conversation with the DA before you put bracelets on her, you had that conversation between bracelet putting and the precinct. Like, and at that point, (laughs) it is the DA's choice to cut her loose or not. See my original Uh point, he wouldn't. The DA okay. would be like, nah, we're going to give this one a go. Right. You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> now. Yes. Now, I want to say, because this is a thing that you say all the time, fiction isn't about reality. It's That's about true. how it feels. That's true. But this feels fucking stupid. So do a it, better job. It does. I mean, this is the thing. Like, you know, reality is no defense of her fiction and is also no condemnation for fiction. Fiction is not supposed to be realistic. It is supposed to be believable. But the thing is, is that in order to build up that believability, you have to, like, earn it. You have to charge your story with believability. And Luke Cage has spent all of its believability collateral at this point. So everything that happens is <laughs> getting a severe side eye from me because it hasn't really earned my trust as a fictional narrative, you know? Um, So, like, why wasn't Candace in protective custody? Like, clearly she's in danger. And Claire's That was a decent reason. (laughs) We had a reason for that. Misty did not feel that she could trust other cops. Uh Like, that part I don't have a problem with, right? Because the the cops in Harlem were kind of off the chain. Right. After Diamondback pretending to be Luke killed that cop on the street right Mm -hmm. i get that part that part's fine but almost and not for nothing but the inspector who makes the decision to let mariah go has a personal relationship with mariah yes which means she probably shouldn't be making any of these decisions anyway by the way the da would be making the damn decisions None of it makes any sense to me. Um, yeah, all right. it's ba- uh, those of you at listening at home that that are already tired of listening to me bitch and moan about how nobody makes any effort to even glance at the law on these shows. <laughs> buckle the fuck up for Daredevil season two. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't wait for that. <laughs> all right. So here's another question. Luke and Diamondback in the street 
killing each other, right? Misty says, save him. And the cops are like, mm, nah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, would you go climbing into that mess? I would not. Uh, I don't like something like somebody's got to have a tranquilizer dart somewhere. Like there's got to be something you can do to like not <laughs> at least diamond back out. Like, I mean, obviously a tranquilizer dart isn't going to do anything to Luke. It'll bounce off of him, you know, but I mean, it's just, I don't know, like the whole thing. It seems like there's all these cops there and they're just watching. I guess they're keeping the, the onlookers relatively safe but it yeah. looks like they're yeah. running a fight club is what it looks like yeah I, I mean that one doesn't bother me as much because they are keeping the bystander safe and yeah. let's be honest we've established that anything involving Luke Cage is just a way for cops to get beat up no that's very very true beat up if not killed um, right yeah alright so another question narratively uh, Luke and Diamondback are fighting, right? And Diamondback is the most recent of a string of antagonists. Luke, if you <laughs> if you notched your bedpost with antagonists, he would have a whittled toothpick left. That's all he would have. Yeah, so, it's not. Whoa. So here we have yeah. this final antagonist, this your brother, this you know best friend from childhood with these complicated daddy issues. Everything has been building up to this. Luke is in the fight of his life and then the power suit fails and that's how he wins okay i'm gonna defend this to a point oh good all right go for it to a point <laughs> it doesn't actually fail what luke realized is that every time he punched the suit the suit absorbed that energy and powered Diamondback's ability to beat the hell out of him. So ah. Luke started taking the punches, just like in the flashbacks to the boxing thing, uh -huh. let him wear himself out. Which, by the way, is not great. Listen, I, I, I boxed very little, <laughs> but I boxed a little. And just let them beat the shit out of you until they're tired is not usually great advice. Regardless. Regardless. <laughs> it is pretty good advice if you have a power suit that is powered by kinetic energy, uh -huh. like taking the punches or the bullets and turning it back on them. The problem is, this is the point where I'm no longer defending it yeah. for those keeping score. The problem is that then he turns around and punches him some more. So, <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize that what? that was why the power suit was failing. Like, I didn't get yeah. clarity on that. So, I don't know. Maybe it was just me. Maybe I just missed that part. I didn't. I didn't understand what in the hell no, was happening. It's a, it's a massive missed opportunity because I really like the idea of the relatively straightforward Luke Cage, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Who is happy to barrel into places because he's basically indestructible and just and just slaps people unconscious. Right. You know, mm -hmm. I like him having to realize that the way to win this particular fight is by losing. I right. love that, mm -hmm. but it's not. It's clearly not explicit enough, right? Because uh, when my wife and I were watching this the first time, this was also lost on her. Okay, and all right. So it's not just now me. it's being lost on you. Yeah, right. You're both very bright women. <laughs> it's I got it. I guess because of like just genre awareness. Okay, and, and because okay. I like. I like it as an idea. Uh, right? I like, like it as an idea too. I think it's a great idea, but I just I completely missed it. Yeah, it wasn't clear. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as Luke gets the suit depowered, he punches it some more, which should repower it. It's not smart. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It just all of it. None of it made sense to me. And at that point, too, like in all fairness, I cared so little. I watched it twice oh, because 100%. there was so much of it that I would realize I you know, had watched it like it was on in front of me. But my mind just drifted away because I was so uninterested in it. So I yeah. felt like that might have been my fault that maybe that's why I have all these whys and I'm asking you after everyone, because <laughs> honestly, my having these questions may also be on me because I just could not care. And there was so much that I was like, wait, what is this? Why is this happening? You know, um, the other thing, too, and this is, you know, kind of actually what in the world is up with Shade's plot armor? I mean, this guy should have died like 15 times and is still around for reasons of why? 
Like, I don't, I don't yeah. understand his plot. I mean, I actually, like, I like Theo Rossi. I think he does a great job yeah. with it. Um, and Shades, I do find interesting as the criminal Jiminy Cricket. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, but he's a great same- consigliere to everybody. He, he's got a role and Rossi is doing amazing things with it, but. But he's it's not enough to two. justify the pretzels that they twist themselves into if to make him not exactly. dead. And if he's so smart, why doesn't he want to be number one? Why does he want to be everybody's number two? I mean, granted, number two, I guess you get to slide around in the background and get out of the way while everybody's chasing number one. But <laughs> I don't know. It's all. But make yeah. it explicit, right? Right. Like, put that on the label that mm-hmm. that's what he's doing. Right. I, yeah. I just didn't get it. I didn't get a sense of it. So anyway, I, I, I had more questions those are my main questions i had questions about everything and it will honestly take us forever to go through them all but that's just kind of like that's my big i don't know why 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 i didn't understand anything that was going on um but i did you know i like misty you know i really enjoyed misty i want her show this cop who can put herself in the scene of the crime i love that effect i love the way it's represented visually i love how smart she is um she also seems to be one of the few actually well-written characters in the show with a couple of hard exceptions you know like when she says luke is guilty in front of all the cops the way that she does that and all of that stuff i didn't particularly care for that dialogue um but i want her on the streets of harlem with a robotic arm no fucks to give and take Taking people down. Like, I want her. I'm not a big fan of the criminal procedural, but I would watch her in a criminal procedural. I think that she is amazing. You know, I have talked before how much I love her and Colleen. I mm-hmm. love the Daughters of the Dragon. Mm-hmm. They are a great buddy cop situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that we're going to love Colleen that we get when we get to Iron Fist enough. Yeah. In fact, my my biggest complaint with that, Colleen, is that I'm like, she can't hang with Misty. Get the <laughs> fuck out of here. <laughs> but in theory, I am mm-hmm. 100% with you. And uh, Missick is doing an amazing job here. I yeah. love her yeah. as Misty. She's so good. Yeah, she really uh, is. And yeah, I, I'm with you. Red outfit, big afro, robot arm, yeah. on the streets. Kicking kick ass. ass, absolutely. Um, I also really love Claire, although, you know, there's always exceptions. It's so <laughs> weird. In the middle of this fight, in the middle of the street, where everybody is watching and shouting, there's police, there's like all this stuff going on, and she just whispers to Luke, Remember who you are. And I'm like, What the fuck is that? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah, I don't love her turning into Yoda. Yeah. You know, for a minute. I mean, yeah. I well, we're going to discuss ways to fix it. <laughs> yes, we will. We will absolutely and, get to that. But, but I like having Claire around. I like her I being like her here. too. I like her a lot. I like her. I like her mom. I like Misty. Honestly, you take the women and just put them out there. <laughs> like leave them out. I do like Luke. I do like Luke. I just don't like the way that he's necessarily written. Um, and I like the romance with Claire and Luke. I think it's mm-hmm. it's sweet. I don't know that it's necessarily terribly earned, but I think that it's it's sweet. I like them. They work well together. It's okay. Although I have to say, I really liked Luke and Jessica better. There was actual romantic conflict there. You know, she killed his wife and she knew it was his wife, but he didn't know and all of that stuff. And I don't know. And I like I like Jessica's tarnish next to Luke's I don't know, we call it sparkle. Um, Luke has, for somebody who's like, because Luke was wrongly, you know, imprisoned, right? He hasn't done anything wrong. He's a good guy in a bad situation. Um, He's a good man, you know, whereas Jessica's, you know, she's got some problems, you know. Um, So I like the two of them together in that way. And they work really well together, whereas Claire is practically perfect in every way. And Luke is practically perfect in every way. And that, to me, lacks kind of an interesting tension and conflict between them. Um, but I mean, aside from that, like I did, I did like them together. I just wasn't as engaged in it as I was in the in the Luke and Jessica romance in, in the first season of Jessica Jones. I think that there is a place where there could be some conflict mm-hmm. because let's remember that Claire and Matt have smooched. Mm-hmm. 
So she's clearly like attracted to this world of, yeah. you know, danger and vaguely super people. And the fact that she keeps on kind of like mothing to that flame right. could have been some interesting stuff. But we're too busy still fucking around with Reva for no yeah. apparent reason because mm-hmm. she's not important to this. And and we don't have time for any kind of romantic yeah. conflict because yeah. we have all this other Needless because conflict. we have eight thousand <laughs> antagonists. But look at the bright side. Mm-hmm. This is a situation where they could have gone. Let's also have some romantic conflict because there's conflict everywhere. Right. And they ha- they held themselves back that one time. That's true. That's true. There is some editorial <laughs> this is a going very on there. Thin silver lining. Right. Very <laughs> thin. Um, the other thing, I mean, I like shades. We've talked about shades. I like Theo Rossi. I like shades as a character, kind of the way that Theo Rossi plays him more than necessarily yeah. Yeah. the way that he's written. Um, so, I mean, that was that was good. And of course, I love Claire's mom. You know, she's fantastic. Yes. Um, so, all of that to say, you know, there were bright spots but narratively and we've talked a little bit about this before but i'm just gonna like sum it up at the end of the season we got a lot of problems first of all again we got a clown car full of antagonists just spewing out (laughs) antagonists like crazy we're constantly switching between them it's like a three card monty game where is the antagonist this week who is the main antagonist this week i don't fucking know um there's way too little personal investment from luke in the beginning um too much time spent away from the actual narrative you know following these antagonists around going off with method man there's all sorts of stuff that's happening that is not about the story um we really don't have a clear personal goal from Luke. Luke is passive and reactive throughout most of this story. It is everybody's coming after Luke, you know, for reasons of whatever, you know. Um, And he is at a certain point trying to you know, like get Diamondback, stop Diamondback from doing all the dirty deeds that he's doing. And there is some of that, but it just never feels, you know, as as personal and as meaningful as I think that it should, you know, and no, at least twice in this season, he was ready to pack up and leave, you know, which is not a, a really compelling and or which is not a really compelling protagonist providing the motive force for the story. Um, Luke's vulnerability is first of all all over the place and second of all not terribly effective i think his most effective moment of real vulnerability was learning that reva had lied to him um and that's you know a few moments from one episode which was mostly dependent upon these flashbacks and doesn't really have a place in the current narrative so mm-hmm. that's not a real strong vulnerability. We have the physical vulnerability of the Judas bullets. But again, that's a physical vulnerability. And what we really look for in a narrative is very strong emotional vulnerability that is tied into the central conflict. Right. But the thing is, the central narrative conflict is defined by a protagonist versus an antagonist with mutually exclusive goals. And because we're switching our antagonist out like old laundry constantly throughout the this season. Um, his personal vulnerability being attached to a very specific conflict doesn't really work. Then we have this moment where, you know, we have his daddy issues. You know, he goes back and he remembers his father. Again, we're bringing in things from the past rather than from the present. We've got Diamondback, who he said didn't know it was his brother and then rem- remembered it was his brother. Why not have his brother just be the bad guy from the beginning and he knows it's his brother and you know that kind of like have that sense of love and connection and actually have that there from the beginning so that we can have a sense of personal investment and vulnerability from Luke by the time we get there we're like you didn't even realize this dude was your brother until I don't know 45 seconds ago and now you're beating the hell out of him in the middle of the street and everything's done you know uh we really don't have a strong sense of that narrative line um he has the fear of going back to jail you know and okay you know fair enough doesn't want to go back to jail but again all of that is relating to the past rather than to the present um and vulnerability is like salt like a little bit goes a long way make it personal and connected to the central conflict which means that you have to have a consistent central conflict which means that you have to have a consistent antagonist those are the rules of narrative (laughs) that's what you got to do 
Um, we have terrible dialogue throughout a lot of this. Way too many big speeches. Um, you can have a speech here and there. You can have one, but you got to really earn it. And you don't want to do it constantly, you know, and there's just too many characters. It's too hard to follow what the hell is going on. Whenever we don't know what to do, we blow something up. You know, we have this one interesting space where they're like well he's bulletproof can he be drowned can he be poisoned like there are other ways to kill people that's an interesting idea that's an interesting thing but I mean what the hell are we even doing so I don't know there's so much that went wrong narratively and then that brings me to my next question how do we fix it well we've talked about a lot of this Mm -hmm. but I think that there's actually some pretty easy fixes, honestly, Mm -hmm. to start with. For one thing, no Diamondback. And not just because he's poorly written here, but because what they started doing with Cottonmouth was just significantly more interesting from Jump. Yes. Um, I'll remind you of some other stuff that we've said. Mm -hmm. Uh, Carl Lucas should be from Harlem. Yes. He should be one of Pop's kids. Personally invested. Not there because Reva brought him there, but because he belongs there. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And he can have met Reva Mm -hmm. in prison. That's fine. He should know Misty as a teenager. Like, they shouldn't have seen each other since they were teenagers. Right. Mm -hmm. But she knew Carl Lucas. You know, Uh, you can have shades like teen shades Mm -hmm. and teen comanche floating around all that stuff i mean again i said this before but um usually the continuity distillation that the mcu does Mm -hmm. is better like you get to the core of the character whereas it maybe took the comic books some number of years to get what was best about them Mm -hmm. but in this case when it comes to rooting luke in harlem yeah the comics killed it Mm -hmm. all day long yeah um, I think you still have Pop encouraging him to be more public with his abilities. And yeah. he says no because he doesn't want to be in prison. But then his inaction gets Pop killed. Mm-hmm. Spider-Man and Uncle Ben style. Right. right? Mm-hmm. And then he's really invested and he's going to take it to Cottonmouth. Even Shades makes more sense at this point because Shades can right. represent a diamond back that we never see mm-hmm. coming in and telling Cottonmouth to get his shit together. Right. At the same time that Mariah is telling him to chill out. Mm-hmm. You're making it too hot for all of us. Like then you have Cottonmouth under pressure. Right. You've got Luke going hard for Cottonmouth and Luke thinks that he doesn't have anyone that can make him vulnerable, right? right? Because Reva's gone, Pop's gone, enter Claire Mm -hmm. and the rest of Harlem because that episode where Cottonmouth tried to beat the idea of Luke Cage by riling Harlem up against him, amazing, Mm -hmm. amazing, Mm -hmm. right? And so I I just feel like that's, you center it on the conflict between Cottonmouth and Luke, who probably knew each other from the Mm -hmm. neighborhood, but Cottonmouth doesn't know that he's Carl. So, you know, Luke's got a personal stake there. He's got a personal stake with Pop. Right. Well, why can't Cottonmouth be, I mean, combine Cottonmouth and Diamondback? You know, Cottonmouth is his brother or that there's some kind of that relationship. There's something that, you know, they discover that they are brothers or they didn't know. Like, I think that having that personal connection is valuable you know but like there's so many different ways that you can make this personal and the thing is is that they pretty much avoided almost all of the of the things that they should have done you know and keeping cottonmouth around yeah i've got a good one for you yeah cottonmouth is clearly a little older Mm -hmm. than luke Mm -hmm. right um it's a little unclear i'm a little concerned or confused i guess because he's a contemporary of pops but doesn't anyway yeah let's tie him closer together uh, Cottonmouth is the one who convinced young Carl Lucas yeah. to start a life of, to start a gang life, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. To join the gang, to do the crimes. And maybe Cottonmouth is also the one who framed him right. instead mm-hmm. of Diamondback, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe he finds that out along the way. This would also allow Cottonmouth to really hold his real identity over Luke's head. Right. You know, mm-hmm. once once he finds out that Luke Cage is also Carl Lucas, 
of all people, then Cottonmouth would be in a position to really make that sting. Mm-hmm. And I think then that the wanting to remain private and wanting to not go back to jail becomes one of the big vulnerabilities for Luke. Mm-hmm. And it's and at a certain point, he just decides that it's worth it if he does the right thing. Well, you know? yeah, definitely. And I think that I mean, I think it's hard because he has a secret identity to have him grown up there because everybody would know who he was, like unless he looked significantly different after what they did to him at Seagate that he could come home you know I mean that actually would be interesting if he looked so significantly different because of what Dr. Burstein did to him that he doesn't look like himself anymore nobody recognizes him but he knows all these people like I think that would be really interesting because then he has this history with all these people but they don't know him you know, so he can't access that history, but he went home anyway, and now it's Cottonmouth who knows. You know, yeah, I yeah. mean, that could have been kind of interesting. You could have done something with that. But the thing is, it's all about that personal investment. It's all about mm-hmm. why does this matter to Luke? And also, like, what Luke is doing. I mean, a lot of protagonists end up in the first act they're reactive right you know the protagonists are just sitting there minding their own damn business then some asshole comes (laughs) along and blows up Harlem or whatever you know but as soon as they engage with the conflict which is the end of the first act and if you're talking about a 13 episode season in terms of one narrative that has all the nested Mm -hmm. narratives so that each particular episode has its own narrative but that they are combining to create the larger narrative of the season then the first act is going to be like end of you know episode three right at that point he's engaging with the conflict he is absolutely actively going after this and it is his goal to stop cottonmouth and that that becomes what this fight is about right and that cottonmouth is trying to do something that is actually going to ruin harlem that is going to take away what what these people have that is their home that is their cultural base you know um so all of that stuff, and I mean, the hard part of that is that Mariah is actually engaging in this love letter to Harlem as well, like throughout. So, I mean, she would be more aligned with Luke. What it is that she's trying to do is she's building these, you know, these community centers. She's like, you know, so she's kind of interesting. I think that's why she's the shadow antagonist, yeah, you know, absolutely, because she says the things that Luke says, right. but wants to get there the way that Cottonmouth will get there. By doing, yeah, shady shit. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a little bit of poison yeah. is all it takes to make that water undrinkable. Exactly. You know? and, and then we really get to see that sparkle on Luke and we get to contrast mm-hmm. it with the fact that he was probably a real shit heel as a kid in this yeah. reimagined, you know, sure. backstory. Sure. And also if you have Mariah at some point, probably the second act turn tempt Luke, you know, that she brings him to this temptation. Like all you have to do is join me, you know? Yeah. And also can we just have Mariah running her own shit instead of having one man or another telling her what to do when it's not 100%. cottonmouth, it's fucking shades, you know? Um, no, I want Mariah absolutely, you know, like running this whole game from this very sweet and, you know, innocent and, you know, community minded space that she is actually, you know, I mean, I would see her as doing more of the shade stuff, being the one that whispers in everybody's ear, you know, while playing the innocent, while saying, I am here for the community, you know, like this kind of thing. That would have been so much more interesting that you have like, you know, two antagonists where you've got Cottonmouth and you've got Mariah and they're kind of like, it's almost like a triangle you know, conflict in that, you know, you've got Mariah and Cottonmouth who are aligned in what they do, right? And Mariah and Luke who are aligned in kind of the end game. Like, what is it that they want in the end? Right, you know, so that you've got Mariah sort of playing both sides, Luke and Cottonmouth against each other. And that whole idea of take your two enemies, point them at each other, they take care of each other and you move on. Her setting them up to kill each other, you know, and then however that works out like however it turns out there's a lot of stuff that you can do with that but dear god you have to simplify 
you know, this story. This story is just way too complex. There's too much shit going on, Um, you know, and it just isn't working. Mm -hmm. We talked about this, but let's also let the bulletproof black man be bulletproof for the entirety of a season. Yes. I'm sort of okay with the idea of a super bullet depending on the context, showing up later, Mm -hmm. right? After we have spent an entire season and a big chunk of Jessica Jones, I mean, more his own show, but we're really focused on the fact that he is a bulletproof black man and that that changes everything, you know? So let that ride for all 13 episodes. So when at the end of act one in season two, he gets shot with a Judas bullet. It's like, oh shit, everything's changed back. Exactly, exactly. But I mean, the thing is the bulletproof black man is hugely symbolic. I mean, that matters. And that's something that we should actually be able to sit with. Not to mention the fact that the most interesting part of this season is when Mariah says, can he be drowned? Like, there are right. other ways that you can try to kill Luke Cage. You do not have to shoot him, you know? And the idea that he's up against people who don't know better than to use bullets, but Mariah, Mariah's no dummy, you know? Yes. Um, I like that. I thought that was a really interesting moment. They did nothing with it, but it was real interesting. I think we can also tap into the very noir roots of, like, exploitation. If we never let Luke really go head to head with Mariah, like he realizes that she's been whispering in his ear Mm -hmm. in a bad way. He realizes Cottonmouth has to go, even if that creates a power vacuum that Mariah is going to slide into. It lets him win, but not win completely. And he knows that he is setting up bigger problems for himself by winning. Which sets up a fantastic second season that, you know, that he traded in. Once he takes Cottonmouth out, then Mariah is able to do whatever the fuck she wants. You know, then she'll be stirring shit up in season two. Yeah, absolutely. You don't have to blow all your gunpowder at once. (laughs) Right. And in fact, if you're doing something of a noir story, which this is obviously much less noir than Jessica Jones, but it's not zero percent. I mean, they're mentioning all these various detective novels along the way. Mm -hmm. That's clearly part of the DNA of what they're doing, Mm -hmm. setting it up so that winning is also losing Mm -hmm. is great for that genre absolutely absolutely and i think that would be wonderful so there's a lot of things that could have been done to fix this um and i you know i just i wish that they had i wanted it to be better but again the love letter to black culture the love letter to Harlem, a bulletproof black man. I can appreciate the power and importance yes. of all of these things within this story. So I think that that leads us into your kind of cultural rundown. What do you got for us for these episodes for the season? I have to do some house cleaning, yes. actually, mm-hmm. because a couple of episodes ago, I misspoke yes. and said that hip hop started in Brooklyn. Oh, it started in the Bronx. Uh-huh. And I said a, and I said Brooklyn for two reasons. Yeah. One is I'm an idiot. <laughs> and the second one is that I have really watched Into the Spider-Verse like a million times. Oh, and so listen, good. they say Brooklyn a lot in yeah, that movie. A too. lot. <laughs> So it was just floating in the back of my mind yeah. and I and I just misspoke, but I wanted to get that right because mm-hmm. it is very important. Like that root in the Bronx is yes. a huge deal and I misspoke. Mm-hmm. Blame into the Spider-Verse. Okay. It's an amazing movie, so it can <laughs> yes. it can own some of the blame with yes. it. Um, I did actually have some ideas thrown at me on Twitter about how Kung Fu movies Mm -hmm. could have become tied to black culture a little bit. Mm -hmm. I forgot. Well, I didn't really forget. I just didn't think about it. It didn't click with me. But Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was very good friends with Bruce Lee. Oh, yeah. You might recall that Kareem was in Enter the Dragon Uh with Bruce Lee. Yeah. Right. Like he's in there doing, you know, he was learning martial arts and he was using it some on on camera. And so having like Bruce Lee, this, you know, the the king of all martial arts films Mm -hmm. at the time, letting Kareem Abdul-Jabbar into that movie could have really cause those things to be again outside of black exploitation cinema it wasn't like you're i mean we're not swimming in black representation in media now right. let alone mm-hmm. 35 40 years ago mm-hmm. um 
Also, the explosion of kung fu movies was very much concurrent with black exploitation, mm-hmm. and it was suggested to me that these things could have been shown as double features in movie theaters in lower income neighborhoods, uh-huh. like where we would redline African American right. communities. Mm-hmm. So, if that's the thing you can afford to see, or you're going for Shaft but you stay for Enter the Dragon, mm-hmm. you know that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so these and not to mention that I actually this I did completely forget and I'm ashamed of myself. <laughs> There's actually a black exploitation kung fu movie called Black Belt Jones. Oh, my God. Yeah. I love Black Belt Jones. I'm ashamed of myself that I forgot it. (laughs) Remembering it also led me to remember that there's a very tongue-in-cheek blaxploitation kung fu movie called The Last Dragon. Wow. I have almost certainly made this joke at you, and if I haven't, it's a shame, and you probably were just like, I don't know what the fuck he's talking about, and let it go. But if I've ever said, who's the Shogun of Harlem? Show enough. (laughs) <laughs> because show enough is the Shogun of Harlem in Enter the Dragon. Uh-huh. Or, I'm sorry, in The Last Dragon. Uh-huh. So so that's a little house cleaning. Uh-huh. I let those things slide. Right. I'm, I'm fixing it now. So some musical house cleaning. Two things. One, the Delphonics were on stage. <laughs> I love the Delphonics. Uh-huh. They are a great R&B group from the late 60s, early 70s. I fell in love with them because they are kind of a thing in Jackie Brown. Tarantino's mm-hmm. adaptation of Elmore Leonard's Rum Punch. Uh-huh. I worship at the altar of Elmore Leonard. Yes. I don't love Quentin Tarantino, mm-hmm. but when he's adapting Elmore Leonard, I show the fuck up <laughs> and the Delphonics become kind of a romantic thing uh-huh. going on in that film. So I just discovered them and loved them. Awesome. You also have Son of a Preacher Man, which is referenced by Diamondback. Mm-hmm. Son of a Preacher Man, also a song that I know because of Quentin Tarantino. It was on the Pulp Fiction soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, sung by Dusty Springfield, who was very much of the white soul or blue-eyed soul mm-hmm. group of people. That's R&B music performed by white folks. Mm-hmm. Dusty's actually British, but she <laughs> sang this amazing song that was yeah. written for somebody else. Mm-hmm. And she's the one who you know became known for it. So... Great song, originally created for Buckle Up, Aretha Franklin. Mm-hmm. That would have been much. I Look, I love that song by Dusty Springfield. Yeah, but it's good. Aretha mm-hmm. would have murdered it. Yeah. But at the time, at the time, it didn't fit with what Aretha was doing mm-hmm. with the album she was working on. So they passed it on to Dusty Springfield. And here we are. Mm-hmm. Okay. In these episodes, Diamondback mentions a book called The 48 Laws of Power. He mentions several of the laws of power. Yes. Mm -hmm. This is a nonfiction book from 1998 by an American author named Robert Mm Greene. Now, I am immediately skeptical of this entire enterprise because Greene also wrote a book called The Art of Seduction. Oh, my God. For fuck's sake. (laughs) But The 48 Laws of Power are very popular with Hollywood types. Mm -hmm prison inmates, and hip-hop artists. Wow. DJ Premier of Gangstar, who gave us all the titles mm-hmm. to these episodes, has a tattoo of one of the laws. So does Busta Rhymes. Wow. It's been mentioned in songs by Jay-Z, Kanye West, and Drake. Wow. So I'm admittedly skeptical of the whole damn thing, but you can't <laughs> deny it's in the mix. Right. right? Mm-hmm. When Luke is on the run, someone mentions Larry Davis. Mm-hmm. So Larry Davis is a man who changed his name to Adam Abdul Hakim in 1989, mm-hmm. okay? So that's why if if you you may know either name. He was a New Yorker who shot six New York City Police Department officers on November 19th, 1986, when they raided his sister's apartment in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. The police said that the raid was executed in order to question Davis about the killing of four suspected drug dealers. Wow. At trial, Davis's defense attorneys claimed that the raid was staged to murder him because of his knowledge of the involvement of corrupt police in the drug business. With the help of family, contacts, and friends, he eluded capture for 17 days despite a massive manhunt. So that's why he's mentioned in terms Mm -hmm. of Luke when he's on the run. Right. Once the search was narrowed to a single building, Davis takes several hostages, but eventually surrenders when the presence of reporters convinced him he would not be harmed. Mm -hmm. Right. Because, again, he's not trusting the police. Right. Also a very on point message for Luke Cage. Wow. Yeah. 
Davis was actually acquitted of attempted murder charges in the shootout mm-hmm. and also acquitted of the charges involving the drug dealers, but he was found guilty of weapons possession in the shootout case and was later found guilty in another murder oh, no. for which he was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Mm-hmm. In 2008, Davis was stabbed to death in a fight with another inmate, oh. so he never came out of prison. The Davis case generated all kinds of controversy at the time. Sure. Many people were outraged by his actions and his acquittal, mm-hmm. but others, probably most of the African-American community, mm-hmm. looked at him as a folk hero because he eluded capture during this massive manhunt and because he was like a place that they could put all of their frustration with the police. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Michael Connolly is mentioned. He's an author who writes a white detective named Harry Bosch. Mm-hmm. So, of course, Luke has never heard of him. <laughs> that actually made me really happy. I was like, I don't know shit about those books, but I like that Luke's like, I don't know who the fuck that is. <laughs> the painting that is switched out for Biggie's yes. portrait. Mm-hmm. Okay, when, when Mariah takes over, she switches out the painting. That is Jean-Michel Basquiat's Red Kings. Mm-hmm. Now, I did not know that. I am not good at art history. (laughs) But from an article on Inverse, Mm -hmm. I was able to discover that uh, Basquiat is an artist who grew up in the Lower East Side. He's a mainstay among among black art and hipster communities. Mm -hmm. Okay, He isn't a Harlem native, but, and this is a quote from Inverse, you could argue his work represents the blending of street level culture and high art that is evident in Luke Cage. All right. I knew it meant something, so I had to go find out. (laughs) Our last musical number Mm -hmm. is performed by Sharon Jones. Sharon Jones started out with a group called the Dap Kings. Mm -hmm. Okay, And the song she's singing is 100 Days, 100 Nights. Mm -hmm. She is an R&B singer who experienced a breakthrough success relatively late in life. Mm -hmm. Uh, She released her first record when she was 40 years old. Mm Shocking for a woman at all, yeah. Mm-hmm. but especially, you know, with the additional pressure of being a black woman. Mm-hmm. In 2014, Jones was nominated for her first Grammy in the category of Best R&B Album for Give the People What They Want. Mm-hmm. She passed away in 2016 after a battle with pancreatic cancer. Oh. So not very long after this show yeah. aired, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah. So and the 100 Days and 100 Nights is... Uh, I mean, you guys listened to the lyrics. Mm-hmm. It's about a woman who comes to realize that the man in her life is doing her wrong mm-hmm. and she resolves to get the fuck over it. Yeah. Sounds like Mariah. Pretty good. A <laughs> little bit. A little bit. Pretty good. So that was kind of long. I apologize. I had some cleaning up no, to do. I, I should have done in the last episode. Yeah. Yeah. But there we are. I love Lonnie. It. Yes. Tell me about your favorite part. Oh, God. Uh, my favorite part, I have to say, believe it or not is this terrible speech from Luke at the end about <laughs> the it's the love letter to Harlem and black yes. culture and honestly with the narrative in this being so bad and this dialogue is so bad the speech <laughs> they give him is so bad but at the heart of it I I kind of love I love that love letter to Harlem because that's honestly what the heart of his whole story should have been it should have been about harlem it should have been about his love of this place and of the people in it and of the art and of everything that they do you know um i i loved all of that so even though it was it was terribly terribly bad um and it was it was terrible in the way that it was directed it was terrible in the way that it was written it was terrible but as a a thesis of luke's mm-hmm. motivation for for all of this and and having that love letter out there you know it just it felt really good to hear it and to see it and to feel that respect and passion for black culture um which we don't get enough you know, we just yes. don't get enough yeah. of that. Um, so honestly, yeah, that was my favorite part. <laughs> what about you? That's legit. I mean, if that had been the only big speech, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. like, and and well, we were only making. If they hadn't done such a heavy fucking hand with it. If that had been something that he said to Claire when they had a private moment, as opposed to with this swelling music underneath in the middle of the <laughs> goddamn police station. 
Um, I okay. I'm actually here for that <laughs> if it's the only time that Luke is speechifying. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, like for whatever reason, they've caught him in a in a reflective moment, mm-hmm. and he starts to really say what Harlem means to him, what the art of his people, the culture of his yeah. people means to him. If it was the only time that we were doing that, and it was the only time that these creators felt the need to make the subtext textual, and it happened way at the very end, high fucking five. Well, also, you know, and yeah, if also they hadn't directed it, like the way that it was directed, where he's making this speech and there's the swelling music underneath, and we're cutting away to all of the things that he's talking about. It's like it was, it was way, it was. I think the power of that was undercut by all of that. Take mm. away the music, take away the cutaways, and just let it hold on Mike Coulter as he says that shit. Uh, yeah. I think I would have been yeah. I would have been there for it but but a big part of it is the way that that, that moment was directed. Um yeah, that's it legit. undercuts itself. Yeah. So what about you? What's your favorite part? Well, I'm I'm going to zero in on a couple of musical things. <laughs> um I love the Delphonics and yeah. so it was really cool to see them and even though it was a giant cul-de-sac Method Man is great. It was great. No, it was. It was really, really good. I loved every minute of it. It was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And the the specifically for me, the moment that Luke is geeking out about, and I quote, PLO style was my jam back yeah. in the day. Uh, yeah. And Method Man's like poking his fingers through bullet holes, oh, like they're geeking out at each other. It's so I lovely. really, I really like that. Yeah. I liked that a lot. And I love the song that he sang, too. Like, I love the song yes. that he did in the radio station. There was a lot of great stuff with that. It was just poorly placed. Yes, 100%. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. Lonnie is at Lonnie Diane Rich, and I am at Joshua Unruh. And the hashtag is Listen Up, A-Holes. This episode of Listen Up, A-Holes was brought to you by the Chipperish and Pulp Diction producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Listen Up, A-Holes is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to our December producers. Shelly, Abigail, Kristen, Noel, Jonathan, Alyssa, Alice, Erica, Sarah, Kevin, and Heather. Thank you, producers, and to everyone who supports Chipperish Media or Pulp Diction Productions, this message is for you. You know, there's something powerful about seeing a black man that's bulletproof and unafraid. To find out how you too can support Chipperish Media or Pulp Diction Productions, our Patreon links are in the show notes. Other ways to show your support, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or crush a gun in your hand like it's an empty soda can. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Listen Up, A-Holes. We'll be back next time with our discussion of Captain America's Civil War. Until then, you know my steez.